Welcome to Financial Planning Explained. I'm your host, Mike Menninger, Certified Financial Planner, owner and founder of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. Um, picking up where we left off from last week's episode, I'm using a case study. The case study was intentionally designed to come up with all kinds of little nuances because it created opportunity to talk about a lot of topics. So I'm picking right up where we left off. So you got the six areas of financial planning. You got cash management, tax planning, risk management, investment planning, retirement planning, and estate planning. Talked about in a previous episode what each of these mean. Next is that we introduced this particular individual. You got a 56-year-old man who just lost his wife. He's got two children, ages 19 and 23. He earns about $120,000 a year. He's self-employed, and both children are college education, either college educated or college bound, all right? Then he has about a million dollars in non-qualified stock type of investments. He's got a million and a half in pre-tax 401k IRA. He's got about nothing, about nothing. He's got nothing in Roth, okay? Uh, he's also received $500,000 in life insurance proceeds from his spouse, uh, $600,000 home, and He's got no other debt. Where we left off from the previous episode is, you know, his goals was kind of sort of thinking about continuing to work, uh, wants to pay for his uh, younger child's education, and also assist his kids with starting life. And then the question is, and here's where we pick up, does he pay off his debt? Okay, well, okay. Why not? Okay, he's got the cash. Let's talk about the proceeds he received from his wife. He received $500,000 life insurance policy. I will have you know that life insurance is not taxable, okay? So it's not taxable at the federal level. It's not taxable at the state level. So certainly not Pennsylvania. If there are other states that do, I apologize if I am incorrect on that. So what happens here is, and people ask this question, am I going to have to pay taxes on it? No, okay? And not only are you not paying income taxes, but you're not paying inheritance tax at the state side, at least in Pennsylvania. It counts towards the federal side, but you got to be over a substantial amount. But anyway, he receives that tax-free. So now I take a look at assets, and let's say his mortgage is at 4%, okay? Well, guess what? You have to earn 4% net of taxes on your cash assets to equal the amount of money that it's costing him for the mortgage. So my take on it is, why not? You got 500 grand in cash, take 200 grand, pay off the mortgage, okay? Some people say, well, I can invest and make more money, blah, 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 blah. I'm not trusting it. If I can guarantee 4% after tax, that's the equivalent of getting about 5.5% that you pay taxes on. If you can guarantee me 5.5%, I'm taking it all day long, okay? So I personally would pay off the mortgage. That's me. So, some more tax planning ideas. So what do we do now, all right? Well, first of all, and we've talked about this so many times. First of all, I believe that he's in a lower income tax bracket today, particularly the fact that he's got all of that money sitting there in the pre-tax assets. 
you know, his, his late wife's 401k, IRA, his IRA, SEP IRA, whatever the take case may be. But little known rule, step up in basis. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, well, let's say, for instance, that she owned a stock, okay, and take it, break it up, and let's say the accounts were each, that each had a half a million. And she had assets in there, and, and she had stock in there, and, you know, she had Microsoft stock that she paid $10,000 for, you know, 10 years ago, and it's worth $100,000. Well, if she dies and she owns it, the beneficiaries get what's called a step up in cost basis, it's a step up in basis, which means if the husband is the beneficiary of the stock, then he inherits that $10,000, I'm sorry, that $100,000 in stock as if he paid $100,000 for it, okay? And it's um, from the date of death, okay? So it was the value on date of death. So it's as if he paid $100,000 for it. So let's say, sadly, let's say, for instance, she was dying a longer death and didn't wrap her car around a tree, and it wasn't sudden. There are ways that you can kind of plan this stuff out. Let's say, for instance, they had a joint account. What you could do is split off the assets. Put the assets that have a embedded capital gain in her name and put the assets that have a loss or something over in his name. So that when she dies, he gets to step up in basis on those assets. Just saying. Now, let's say, for instance, in a different situation is that the accounts were held jointly and it was a sudden death. Regardless of whether it's a sudden death, it's not relevant. So what would happen here is using the same scenario where they had $100,000 in Microsoft stock that they bought 10 years ago for 10 grand, what it would get is if it was jointly held is a half a step up. What the heck is that, Mike? Well, it's as if she owned 5,000 that was worth 50, he owned 5,000 that was worth 50. So half of the stock gets a step up in basis. So in fact, the beneficiary, the husband, will receive and own $100,000 worth of stock where his half has a cost basis of five grand, her half had the cost basis of 50, so now he has a cost basis of $55,000, okay? So, good to know. Another thing that's important is this year, they will be filing, married filing jointly, which has tax advantages. So in the case where someone doesn't have dependents, they'll be able to spend the rest of this year or the year that they died filing married jointly. Well, if they died earlier in the year, then there's very little income that the one spouse had. So let's say she died in January or February. Now we're taking a look at his income of 120,000. He does not reach the split between the 24 and 32% tax bracket until he has $340,000 of taxable income, which is roughly the equivalent of $370,000 worth of income. Which means that if he wanted to do a Roth IRA conversion, let's assume the only thing he has is that income, if he wanted to do a Roth IRA conversion, he can convert $250,000 and keep himself within those lower income tax brackets. Okay, because the odds are he's not going to be 
in a lower tax bracket than 22 or 24% when he's in retirement. So he slip slides 250 grand out. Now, little known rule is if you have a dependent, then you may file for two more years afterwards as a surviving spouse, which is also married filing jointly, which means that this gentleman for the next three years can be pounding the daylights out of Roth IRA conversions. What's a Roth IRA conversion? That enables him to take money from his IRA, move it over to the Roth IRA, and pay taxes on it today, and then it grows forever on a tax-free basis, okay? And by the way, being the age 56, to get it tax-free, you have to have it in the account for five years. So guess what? By January 1st to five years later, guess what? He could start pulling all that money tax-free. That's a beautiful thing, a hugely beautiful thing. Now, so the long-term tax planning that we can do here is, again, projecting out where is he going to be in future years. If we see that that $1.5 million is going to be a ticking time bomb for later, then what he should be doing is trying to get the money out of the IRA and into the Roth. And I like to always say this is a way of remembering. IRA has three letters. Bad. Bad is three letters. IRA is bad. Roth, four letters. Good. So Roth is good. So particularly on the back end, you know, obviously it's like, do you want to pay taxes or not pay taxes? Obviously not pay taxes. But because of the fact that the IRAs may in fact turn into a ticking time bomb for taxes later, then you're better served getting it out while the tax brackets are still low. By the way, on that note, so the current tax brackets, as I mentioned in the previous episode, which I will mention again, the current tax brackets are the lowest that they have ever been in my lifetime. In my lifetime, been around for a while, okay? And probably my parents' lifetime, not probably, and my parents' lifetime. And I will say, in all likelihood, these tax brackets are still not going to get any lower, even during my kids' lifetime. So if you take my parents' lifetime through my kids' lifetime, that's an awfully long time. We are actually sitting in the lowest income tax bracket system that we will ever be in. So what do you want to do? You look at it as an opportunity, okay? So here's another really cool thing. QBI. What's QBI, Mike? Oh, okay. Well, I'll tell you. QBI is Qualified Business Income Deduction. What in the world is that? Well, I'll tell you what. Little known rule, but uh, this came out with the Trump tax laws. They call them the Trump tax laws. It's TCGA, Tax Something Jobs Act, right? So what this does for um, self-employed individuals is a self-employed individual can actually get a tax break of 20% of profit. So let's take a look at this guy here. Okay, he has $120,000 of self-employment income. Let's assume that's his profit. So as long as has his taxable income is below that $340,000 threshold, guess what? Married, by the way. If it's single, it's 170, which is why you capitalize on the tax brackets where they are. But anyway, so what happens here is that he gets a 20% tax deduction just for the sake of 20% of his profits. So 
Whatever his AGI is, boom, he takes off $24,000 after that. So he's lowering his taxable income by 24 grand. So item of note, just came across this. So I help my clients before they actually file their taxes. Oftentimes I suggest, hey, do me a favor. Have your accountant provide me with the tax return before it's actually submitted. So I projected, and I was right on the number, is this particular client is in the 24% tax bracket. Okay, and in fact, if you look at her tax return, the tax return says she's in the 24% tax bracket, which is why don't always go by what you hear. Don't always go by what the accountant says or what the tax return says because they say she's in the 24% tax bracket. And no, 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 okay, here's why. Because of the fact that she is able to contribute 20% to her SEP IRA, not to be confused with 20% QBI, but she's allowed to contribute up to 20% to her SEP IRA. So let's say for a moment she chooses to contribute $10,000 to her SEP IRA. This guy chooses to contribute $10,000 to a SEP IRA. Okay. What happens is that the SEP IRA is considered a business expense. You're paying retirement to everybody. Everybody happens to be you. So what happens then is there, he makes that $10,000 contribution. His profit goes from 120 to 110, which means that he gets a 20% tax deduction on 110, which means no not in a 24% tax bracket. It's actually 19.2. And how do you know? Because what I suggested to the accountant do is do me a favor. I said, take that SEP IRA contribution out that you wanted to put in. I said, first of all, we know what the tax is. Take that SEP IRA contribution out. Took the SEP IRA contribution out, and lo and behold, the tax went up by $1,920, which happens to be 20% less of 24%. So understand what the effective or marginal tax bracket is, and that helps you understand. In her case, there's no way in the world she's going to be in less than a 19.2% tax bracket because she's got a boatload of IRA money. So anyway, let's take a break here, and we'll pick up where we left off. I'll be back with you in just a few moments. Have you saved enough for retirement? Are you financially prepared for an emergency or unexpected event? Have you thought about your financial future? Hi, I'm Mike Manager, founder of Manager & Associates Financial Planning. For over 20 years, we have been answering our clients' questions just like these as we develop unique and comprehensive financial plans tailored to meet their needs. When addressing your financial plan, we incorporate your entire financial picture, including taxes, estate planning, as well as investment planning and retirement planning. So call us today for a complimentary no-obligation consultation. A unique approach to financial planning.
Welcome back to Financial Plan and Explained. I'm Mike Menninger, your host, certified financial planner. Uh, I'm loving this one. So where we left off was the qualified business income deduction and how I went off on my little tangent that the QBI in this particular instance was actually, first of all, the QBI is a wonderful thing, but if you have a QBI in, in he has the ability to contribute $7,000 to an IRA and get the full $7,000 deduction. But if he contributed $7,000 to his SEP, it reduces the amount of money that his company makes as a profit, which means he loses 20% of $7,000 for the purpose of the Q QBI, the Qualified Business Income Deduction. Just another little tidbit to think about because I come across this a lot. And believe it or not, the accountants don't think about it in many cases. So more things to talk about. We're going to talk about the retirement planning. Okay. So conceptually, he's like, well, you know, am I thinking about retiring? Maybe, maybe not, whatever the case may be. Well, guess what? You know, a lot of times people want to retire, may not want to retire. One thing's for certain. One of the things that I found is pretty cool. Seems, seems like people right around the age of 60 is when you begin getting tired and tired of it. So it's beautiful as a business owner, you have a lot of control over your destiny, meaning that you're not at risk of being laid off. And trust me, there's a lot of age discrimination out there. 60 years old, it's not going to be easy to find a job. But anyway, so what's important to do with someone like this is retirement income planning, okay? Again, it's a function of the tax planning, maximizing tax efficiency, maximizing tax strategies, um, but also... It's developing the retirement income model. You know, what are your goals and objectives in retirement? And will you get there? Okay. And so the most important thing that I've always said to clients is that the most important thing you can do is understand what your cost of living is. You know, if you tell me that your cost of living is three grand a month and you're earning $2,500 a month at Social Security, guess what? And you got a million, two million dollars in assets, you're going to make it without a problem. But if you told me it's $20,000 a month, well, it's a different story. So it's remarkable how much of an impact that the cost of living is going to have on the success of being able to retire. So let's assume for a moment he's capable of doing it. He's thinking about retiring at age 60. Well, guess what? Here's an opportunity as a widow that he can maximize Social Security, and this is a super cool rule that you could do. Now, I've talked about this in other case studies. I've talked about this in an episode that I did on Social Security. In fact, there's a two-part episode on Social Security planning, and all right, I think the second one's better than the first one because the second one picks up but anyway. So one thing that little-known rule is as a survivor – what this gentleman can do is beginning at the age of 60, he can begin to collect 71.5% of his wife's full retirement age Social Security. Now, if she was 56, 57, her full retirement age would have been age 67. Well, if that happened to be, say, three grand, let's say both of them were about three grand. So if his was three grand or hers was three grand, she can get, he can get 71.5% of three grand, which is something to the tune of $2,200. Okay. So he could begin to earn $2,200 of his, her Social Security while he allows his to grow. And then once he turns 70, he can flip from hers over to his which would be an extra 8% per year for three years or 24% over the three grand of his own, which means it's going to be what? 
3720 bucks. So all Social Security is actuarially uh, sort of calculated. So the fact of the matter is, is whether he takes his own at age 62, at 67, or 70, or any time in there in between, actuarially, it'll be the same thing. Well, heck, if he can collect his at 70, but then collect his late spouses all the way from 60 to 70, he's so far ahead of the game, it's unbelievable. Except you can't get married. Okay, you can't get married prior to age 60, or else you blow out that rule. So... That's another thing you can do. Now, more tax considerations when it comes to estate planning, okay? Recognizing when it comes to estate planning, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be leaving assets to your children. Well, one thing that the SECURE Act that came out effective January 1st of 2020 did is it took away the stretch IRA. The stretch IRA was that if I inherited assets, I could take them over my life expectancy. Okay, and if you're 55 years old, they look at your life expectancy as being something like 30 years. So the first year is 130th, then 129th, 128th. Well, that's only like three or four percent. Okay, well, they changed that rule. They changed that rule that you have to take it out over the span of 10 years. Okay, so if I have an IRA, let's assume I'm that person in this in this thing. So if I have an IRA, it's $1.5 million today at age 56, it's going to be an awfully big number. And if I die at, quote, unquote, my statistical age, guess what? My kids are probably in their 50s. And if they're in their 50s, then guess what else? They're probably at their prime earning years. And I'm going to say, hey, kids, I love you so much. I'm going to give you this giant IRA that you now have to take it out in 10 years, which is roughly 15% of the value every year if you factor in growth. So now all of a sudden, here the kids are at age 50, 55, they're making prime earning years, and all of a sudden they're getting inundated with all of this taxable income from the IRAs that I left them. Not wise, okay? I mean, the way I look at IRA money, you know, again, first of all, Assuming, of course, that, that I have enough money to live comfortably for the rest of my life. So what you do is you take a look at the IRA and say, how can we make these assets, which are going to be taxable, how can we make these assets the least amount of taxable? Because I certainly don't want the federal government to be one of my primary beneficiaries. Because they're going to tax the money. They're going to tax it to me or they're going to tax it to my kids. Okay. I also recently did one where the client was above the estate threshold. We converted $3.5 million of the IRA, paid the maximum tax. You're like, Mike, what are you, crazy, 37%? Yes, I'm crazy. And the reason why I'm crazy is because the tax that they had to pay on it reduced what was being exposed to the estate tax, and net-net, the kids inherited assets that they pay 22% tax on as opposed to the inherited tax, okay, as opposed to the income tax that they would be inheriting with this gigantic IRA, okay? So the other thing that a little-known rule, I use it a lot, okay, and, and is the qualified charitable distributions. Qualified charitable distributions allow you to take your um, 
RMD, which is your required minimum distribution, and donate it directly to the charity. Well, this became more prevalent after the 2018 tax laws because when they changed the itemized deductions to cap the taxes to 10000 and then they raised the limit of the standard deduction, it turned out that very few people were able to itemize anymore, which subsequently had a real adverse impact on the charities. I mean, the charities were up in arms like, well, wait a minute. If people aren't getting the tax deduction, they're not making the contributions. Well, take someone who is planning on making the contributions anyway. Okay, well, guess what? Here's what they could do is, let's say, for instance, I have someone who has a, a, a $10,000 required minimum distribution. If the money is distributed directly from the IRA to the charity, then that income does not count on taxes. For instance, let's say my local charity, I want to put $500 a month or $100 a week into the plate. Okay, normally putting $100 a week into the plate. Well, if I were to literally get a checking account from my IRA, I can write the check from my IRA, put that IRA check into the plate going by, and guess what? 52 times 100, that's $5,200 that is not taxable for my IRA, which I would have had to have take out anyway. The other thing we've done is, so that they're not doing the plate thing, is we can have the IRA make automatic distributions of $500 a month directly to the charity. So whether it's putting it into plate, make it a charitable contribution, at the end of the day, if I did 10,000, if my RMD was $10,000 and, um, and I wrote $7,000 worth of checks during the course of the year, then I only need to take $3,000 out to be taxable. So in other words, what happens is you look at my tax return, it's going to say $10,000 of IRA distributions, $3,000 taxable income. And if you have a lot of other income, when you're deep into retirement, this could be saving you on income that is exposing your Medicare to higher premiums. Now, take it what you want or call it what you want. If my Medicare premiums are going up because my income is high, then call it what you want. When there's an exchange of money between me and the IRS and it's associated with my income, then gosh darn it, it's a tax. So if I can help mitigate that by having some of my required minimum distributions go out as charitable distributions, well then I kill two birds with one stone. That's a beautiful thing. Let me also tell you another idea. So let's say for instance, I have a, um, a charitable inclination. I, I can't believe how many times that I've not seen this with estate attorneys. But one of the things that I could do is if I wanted to leave a charity money, what I'll do is I will make the charity the beneficiary or partial beneficiary of my IRA. Why? Stick the charity with the 
taxable income. Of course, I sound mean. Why do you stick a charity with the, char with, with the income? Because they don't pay taxes on it. So why give, call it $100,000? If I had $100,000 that I wanted to leave to a charity, why don't I just leave them $100,000 out of the IRA? As opposed to $100,000 from life insurance. By leaving them $100,000 out of the IRA means I'm not giving my kids that $100,000 that they're going to have to pay tax on. So the other thing is that you could do is gifting. I could be gifting up to $16,000 a year if I'm trying to reduce my estate. I'll gift $16,000 a year to each of my kids. Um, and legacy planning is something that one of the things that I've seen people do. They have more than enough money to live, okay? And they want to leave money for their kids. Well, one of the things that you could do is you could also buy a life insurance policy. And so let's say, for instance, I have two kids. I can create what's referred to as an ILIT, which is an irrevocable life insurance trust. If I gift $32,000 a year to this trust, this trust buys a life insurance policy. Now, 32000 what's that? 16 times 2, okay? Because the ultimate beneficiaries are my two kids. I gift $32,000 a year to this trust. This trust, in turn, buys a life insurance policy. Let me tell you something. $32,000 buys an awful lot of life insurance. So what happens here is $32,000 might actually buy close to $10 million worth of life insurance. So effectively, what I can do is leverage my estate. So therefore, for instead of gifting or whatever, I'm leveraging, so I'm either giving my kids an extra $10 million when I die, or that $10 million may be necessary for the purpose of paying for estate taxes if I am really loaded in my estate tax and, and I have a estate tax problem. So I am going to end it at that. I can go on and on and on. I, I'm not going to end it at that. Establishing testamentary, tr testamentary trusts. Those are trusts that are established upon my death. So if I have younger kids, my kids are 19 and 23, I want to make sure that my kids aren't going to be given a whole bunch of money. What I'll do is I'll create trusts that enable the money to be distributed during the course of their lifetime in a manner with which the assets are protected from estate taxes and the assets are protected from themselves. So if they get divorced, the spouse doesn't get it. If they die, then it can go directly to their children, or if they do something stupid, wrap their car around a tree, dry, drunk driving incident, guess what? They don't lose those assets. So on that note, here's all these different things that we're able to touch upon with a simple case study. So thank you very much for joining. My name again is Mike Menninger, certified financial planner. I am the owner and founder of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. I hope that this two-part episode on a case study was able to bring up a whole lot of really nifty, cool things. I could have probably pulled this into three episodes because I found myself gabbing, which I've been told I can do really well. Um, I, I talked about a lot of cool stuff. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I look forward to catching up with you uh, next episode. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day and week.